Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Pep, great to see you again. You're back from vacation. I am back from vacation. Thank you. I feel good. It's As um, we said, as we were saying earlier, tanned, rested, and ready. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I go to the dermatologist (laughs) next week. They'll slap me down. (laughs) They'll slap me down real quick about being tanned and rested. Yeah. Oh, gracious. Yeah. So mm. today we are, as as uh, you may know, if you've been listening to this season of the podcast, we are going through Kurt Thompson's second book, The Soul of Shame. And if you haven't picked it up already, I highly recommend that you do so that you can be reading the chapters along with us uh, and then enjoying the podcast as sort of something that's going to back up all the things that you're, that you're reading. And uh, this week we are on chapter four. And the title of this chapter is The Story of Shame You Are Living. And Kurt, I think you should start us off to sort of set, set the tone for today. Let us know what we're gonna be, where we're going to be going. So we've been talking thus far in this season about some of the mechanics of shame. We've, we've talked about kind of how it operates in the brain. We've talked about that whole notion of a, you know, this standard transmission operating system in a car, the accelerator, the brake, the clutch. We've talked about the different ways that shame uh, shears things off both in one's own mind, in the brain, and also between people. But we've also said it, you know, at the outset, we, we said we, we want to remember that we are people who live in the middle of stories. We're like, we, we are telling stories about ourselves all the time, which is shame isn't just a mechanical thing that happens out there in the abstract. It is embedded in the stories that we tell. And today, we are going to really explore how those things converge, how it is, first of all, that we are storytellers and why and how it is then that the, that the mechanics of shame you know, play a role in that. And, and so we, we like to talk about this notion that we're moving from mechanics to meaning. And this whole notion that we are creatures, uh, as we'll talk about in a little more detail in just a moment, we are creatures who are always telling stories, even if we don't know that that's what we're doing. And I, I begin with this, uh, you know, we have an example from the from the book, but a, a patient of mine, Robert is his name, and he came to see me. He was had a, had a history of depression. It had taken him a long time to get to the office. And some of the reason it had taken him a long time was because he had been so depressed. And by the time he got there, his understanding, he was a really bright guy. His understanding was that this is a condition that I have, and I think that there are probably some things, maybe I have to do some cognitive behavioral work, but I need to get medication and then my problem will be gone. I will, I will no longer have a problem. Like my, my depression really is just this thing that I have. And of course, in the, in the course of doing a complete psychiatric evaluation, we ask other kinds of questions and including, which we find to be really important, questions having to do with what people make of their lives? Like, what's the meaning? Like, where, where's, where, where's the meaning that you, that you derive? Now, I, I think it's important to say for all of our listeners that if you were to ask me that question and I were at, at a time when I'm depressed, even my capacity to answer that question thoughtfully might be impaired. And so I, taking that into consideration for Robert, when, when a person is depressed, the whole notion of being thoughtful and reflective about what our you know, 
stories really are, like that's not always easy to do because my brain is on lockdown. That's not just because of my story. That's because neurobiologically I'm in a hard place. But what was interesting to me was that Robert was able in that moment when I asked him that question, Robert was able to acknowledge that he didn't think that meaning had anything to do with his condition at all. I mean, he, he was aware enough not just to say like, oh, I can't think about that. He was aware enough to say, I don't like that. I, I don't really think that that matters. I, I don't know why we're talking about this. Not just that he couldn't, but that he didn't know what was important about this. And of course, the more we began to explore some of these things, and, and, and he was a guy who we, we did start a course of antidepressant medication and there were some tactical things that we needed to do to have him. We started to have him start to exercise, start to do some other things that he didn't really feel like doing at first. But over the course of all of that, his brain started to wake up more and more, and he began to recognize that, my goodness, this condition in which I find myself, this depression, is not just a thing that happens to me. It just doesn't come over me like COVID, like a, like a virus, and it infects me, and then there it is. It is a thing that gradually came upon me over time, and once it kind of found a foothold, then it found a beachhead, and then it took the continent. In no small part, because of the story right. that he had been telling throughout the course of his life. Yeah, and it starts very, very young, as you as you talk about in the book, the pre-language, right? Right, right. This we talk. We've 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 said in previous episodes. We talk about one of the ways that we talk about the definition of the mind is this emerging process that regulates the flow of energy and information. Mm-hmm. And this energy, this this experience of what we sense and image and feel and all this neurobiological and interpersonal energy, literally, that's not just a metaphor, that's real, it's the physics of energy. We are having these experiences and eventually we, as, as we like to say, we operate bottom to top and right to left. Eventually we become these storytellers, this infer- we have to make a meaning. We have to make sense of these things that we sense. I was uh, recently listening to an interview of the British evolutionary biologist, Simon Conway Morris, and he is well known in his field. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't know of him because that's, that's not my field, but he's well known in his field. And one of the things that he talks about, and he's, and he's, uh, he is, he's not, not a believer. He's, he, he identifies himself as a person who believes in, 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 in the supernatural, in, in a God. He's not sure about Christianity, although he had exposure to that as a kid. But he's deeply familiar with the process of evolution. And one of the things that he points out is that we are the species that tell stories, which is really interesting to hear a person with his credentials yeah. say that, like what really, for him, like you, you can, lots of people would say, well, what sets Homo sapiens apart? What sets us apart from all other living creatures? And we might say, oh, our sentient minds, like our, well, you know, we, we presume that a dog is sentient, like it's, it's aware of, of certain things. And like, especially if you're in a Gary Larson, you know, comic strip, <laughs> like you're like super aware, of you're more aware of things than the humans are. Yeah. Like I, I sometimes wish... I, I mean, well, I, I mean, like, I, I don't know that getting my wish would be a good thing, but I sometimes wish, like, I would, I would love for a day to live in Gary Larson, like a, a world that he creates. And what would it be like to come around the corner and, and see dinosaurs smoking cigarettes to discover this <laughs> is odd. this is how they, 
This is how they really died. He said he was always afraid one day he was going to wake up and realize that it wasn't really his life that he was living. Like he was, you know, that's how much he loved what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. The talent. Yeah. Yeah. So like even Gary Larson, for instance, like, like if, imagine how he tells stories. Like he's like, we even, we even want, we don't just tell stories. We tell stories in which we want other creatures who typically don't to be able to tell stories. Right. We want them to be able, like, we believe that a dog really is having thoughts about us. We want that to be so true. And this is the thing, that we don't just tell them randomly. There is a particular and a peculiar way that we do tell them. Like, we sense things, right? We talked about this bottom-to-top, right-to-left phenomenon of the, you know, the spinal cord brainstem to, you know, midbrain, right hemisphere, left hemisphere, you know, movement, in which we eventually give meaning to all the things that we are experiencing. And that leads then to this crucial goal. And, and, and again, this isn't a thing that we have to go to school to learn to do. Like we are doing this from the moment that children pick up words. You notice children pick up the intention of their adults, uh, of their adult caregivers, and they, the children, you start to see the stories form. We were, I was, I just got back from vacation and we had the, um, my nephew was there and he has young kids and his son is, is really young. And, there was a an Alexa in the, in the house we were staying. Oh my in. gosh! And he says, "Hey Alexa, play Proud Mary." <laughs> he was entertaining us to no end. Just you know, a little could barely even say it, and he was down there singing it, and it was really fun. Really wow. Fun. Okay, so you imagine. So so about how old would your nephew's son be? Uh, he's only. I mean, he's a toddler. You know. So yeah, yeah, yeah just forming his so language. About- Right. Just now. But, but even as a toddler, you can imagine that the toddler is not just asking Alexa to play a song. The toddler at some level is aware of the other people in the yeah. room and is anticipating not just the proud, not just proud Mary, right. is anticipating what's going to happen in the room. That toddler already is imagining a story that's about to unfold. Mm. We don't have any evidence that elk do this, right? We don't, we don't have evidence that other, th- there is a way in which we tell stories that is part, is, is a crucial part of how it is that we as human beings are to have dominion over the earth hmm. from Genesis chapter one. That there is, that part of how we have dominion is we tell stories about the way the world is and is going to be. And so, one of the crucial questions that we ask patients and that we, and you know, that we, that all of us, as we're all listening together, we ask this question, you know, every, every, every moment, like, what is the story in which I believe I'm living? Mm-hmm. In what story am I living? I think we've covered this a little bit before in other episodes, but this, this sense of like, oh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to say that I, I believe that I live in the biblical narrative, in the story that is somewhere between the ascension of Jesus and his appearance that's coming may come tomorrow, it may come 10,000 years from now. We're living somewhere in between that, but that's a story that I'm telling. But there are many moments of many days in which I live as if I don't believe I'm in that story. I believe I'm in the story in which if I don't get what I need right now, I am not, I'm not going to be okay. Like I'm, 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 I'm going to be devoured by the moment. I'm going to be overwhelmed. I'm 
you know, if I if I can't get that, if I if I don't get the last two cookies, I mean, like this is really not. I mean, like I'm not even kidding. When my wife makes homemade chocolate chip cookies, I am a brute. Like you do not want to be in my way. You do not want to be between me and the homemade cookies. And so, like it's like she's she's making two dozen cookies because we're having guests come over, right? We're gonna have a we're two dozen cookies, and I'm already like so. The first thing, like once she puts them out on the counter. I'm like, well, I, you know, I want to make sure that they're okay, that they meet standards, sure. right? So I need to try, I, I need to try one or five, well, you know, I, I, I got I to try one. And then, of course, like I'm monitoring the consumption of these cookies throughout the evening. Because, <laughs> I mean, this is like, can you imagine? People pay me money to have, as their psychiatrist, and this is who they're dealing with. Yeah. And I, I do, like, I'm, like, speaking of toddler, like, I'm like your nephew's son. You know, I was driving. We drove to on vacation, and it was a it was a about a ten hour. 10, well, I was thirteen on the way down because of bad weather, but it was about a ten hour on the way back. And I I find myself because I drive. I like to drive, so I I, mm-hmm. I just stay behind the wheel the whole time. And so, about four or five hours in, I find myself like telling stories about all the people <laughs> around me, and like. That guy can't beat me. And when you start getting, when you start getting competitive with the other drivers on the freeway, exactly. and thinking we're not Sorry. pulling off, we're not pulling All off right. for a rest stop here because, so, because no, 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 I'm I'm monitoring the vehicles such that like when I pull, if I had to pull off, I'm like, okay, I gotta catch I'm gonna up. catch that dude. I'm gonna catch that dude <laughs> catch in about ten miles. Like I'm, I'm gonna catch that dude in ten me. miles. Oh my gosh! Like this is like these are the things that go in and run like. It's too bad that Gary Larson didn't have access to our minds. Yeah, like he would have. He might have had a career have, then. He, he might have. <laughs> he, he might have. But this is what we do. We're telling these stories right. all the time, and we like to talk about how we tell them on macroscopic levels. We tell them on microscopic levels, and then there's anything in between. And these macroscopic levels might be things like, you know, I, I believe the world is fundamentally good, or I believe the world is fundamentally going to hell in a handbasket, or I believe people are fundamentally good, or people are fundamentally evil. All these, or I believe in God, I don't believe in God, I believe in the gospel, I believe in Jesus, or like I don't think, there are all those kind of large things that we don't think about very often explicitly. But then there are these, what we might call intermediate stories that are more proximal some of them are like so proximal, we might call them microscopic stories, kind of like, oh my gosh, like I have to go to the bathroom. Like I become aware, like, and, and, but I'm aware that I should have gone 10 minutes ago before the next session started. Right. There are those, there are those moments or like, man, I'm really thirsty. I want to get to, oh yeah, that's right. There is, there, we've got that new fresh lemonade that's in, the, in, in I'm, I'm going to, re- I'm going to really enjoy that. Like the, these moments. And then there, then there's these things that are other, other ways that our stories shape. It's kind of like, I'm so angry at my dad. And I don't have a way to resolve that. If I, like, all the things, right? If, gosh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to keep my job. Or we're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I think he likes me. And I tell the story about what, like that, that, that matters. I'm so worried about my son who has autism. The story that I tell about that, that I get reminded of every day. These are stories that we are telling. They aren't just things that are happening to happen in our world. They are things that we are sensing, imaging, feeling, and thinking, and then we are making meaning. We are active participants. Whether we know it or not, 
we are exercising dominion over the world through the stories that we tell. That's how we do it. And the question again always is, in what story do I believe that I'm living? And I'm, I'm aware that I frequently, I run off the road of the story that I want to be telling. I run down into, you know, I go off-roading into places of like, I'm, I'm not wantable. You know, I, I have this, I, I, you know, I, I have, I do, I mean, for real, like I do have this one part of me that kind of times it comes into center stage and other times it's backstage, but it's this part that like believes he's unwantable. Like it's, 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 it's there. It's not like, oh, we can, we, we can have a 10 minute conversation and uh, convince him otherwise. And then he'll just like, like give up his job, right? No, I mean, that part's pretty embedded in me. It's not a matter of it going to go away completely. It's a matter of like, I'm going to have to work with this part until I'm dead. And so, you know, it, that's, that's the part that informs the story in which like, if I, if, if I sense something, even, even here, if I sense something in you and Amy, if I, if I sense a moment in which like, we're not completely okay, like it's that part of me that is like trying to get onto the stage. That's, and it's a, sto- it's a storyteller. And so we have these large stories, macroscopic, these microscopics and everything in between. And they all point to these different features that stories have. These features, one of the things that we like to say about stories is that they always begin with someone else. Our stories begin with someone else. My parents, as I may have shared in other other episodes, my my parents were in their mid-40s when I was, when when my mom got pregnant with me and you know, we say that like my mom got pregnant. Even the way I tell it, like my mom, my mom got pregnant. She went to the grocery store and she found out that she got pregnant. Kind of like she got a virus. Like as if like she it just happened to happen. Is it like my mom got pregnant? As if my dad somehow was like he was he was at work and like somehow just magically. <laughs> Let's hope he wasn't at work. That's all. I right? Say. No, I'm 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 pretty. I, I'm told. I'm told that he was there when it happened. I, that's what I'm told. But you know this this sense that they're pregnant in their mid forties and in 1962, like that's anxiety provoking. And so their sense of me was that I was a source of anxiety. Now, it's not like they're thinking this consciously. They're not saying to themselves and to each other, this is horrible. This is, but these are things that are feeling, I I don't have it. If I, if I had it, I would, I would show it on our, on our YouTube video. I have a picture of my parents sitting on the couch the night before I was born. You, you'd think that they want that one or both of them had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Now, granted, like, you know, she's with her fourth kid. It's been 11 years since she's had a baby. We thought we were done with this. She's pregnant. Nine months, she's ready to go. And, like, we're, like, tired. But, like, there's, you know, there's, like, there's not even the faintest hint of, like, oh, my gosh, this is this is going to be, like, you know, when we first got the news, this is hard, but, like, we were so glad. Like, you, you, like, that's not a story that you would tell if you were to look at that picture. So there, my story is being told by somebody else long before I ever entered. And for all of our listeners, somebody else is telling your story long before you ever got here. And that then leads to the next feature about storytelling, and that is that they are always and forever told collaboratively. You come into the world and people continue to tell stories about you. They put you in certain clothes. They send you to certain play dates, things that you don't want to do, things you would never wear now, things that you would, people you would never be with if you had your choice. But they're going to tell the story like, oh, it's my best friend. Her kid's here. You're, you're going to be friends with like, no, I hate Joey. I don't really, I don't want to come back to Joey's house ever again. But like, you love Sarah. So I guess we're going to have to do this. They're telling our story, even in ways that are congruent or incongruent with the things that we are sensing. So one of the questions becomes, in what way is my story seen by my parents 
in such a way that attachment mm-hmm. can form in a secure way. One of the things that we talk about in terms of attachment processes, that forms of attachment are insecure or secure forms, have everything to do with how we make sense, how we tell stories about our lives in relationship to other people. Because our stories are always told collaboratively. As we age, we take over more and more and more of the script of the story that we're telling. But it is never without someone else being in the room helping us tell that story. And so one of the crucial questions for us becomes, who are the people who are in our lives who are continually helping us tell our stories more truly? Because it never stops. As we are... Made, made as we are in the image of a triune God, a relational God, who are helping each other. They tell each other the story of who they are at all times. Made in their image, that's how we're made to do the same thing. Moreover, you know, when we think about story, we're such wordy people, we often miss the fact that so much of our stories that are told are non-conscious and non-verbal. It's like we, we, if you go to a really good movie, you wouldn't want to go in and the lights go out and then all you hear is dialogue. No, you want music and you want video and you, you want all the things. You want right. all the nonverbal sensations, all the things. And so I cross my arms when I walk into a room, maybe because I'm cold, maybe because I'm like nervous, and I send a message. I tell the story to someone else. I'm not okay. Stay away. I'm sending that message to somebody else. You stay away. I'm going to posture myself this way. But what I fail to see sometimes is that I'm I'm telling that same story. I'm telling the story to myself that says, like, Kurt, you're not okay. You're not okay here. You're not at ease. And so even with our nonverbal cues, our nonverbal, all the things that we sense and image and feel, we are continuing to tell. So so much of our story that is told is told non-consciously and non-verbally. But another thing that's important is that We want to tell our stories in order for them to be heard. That toddler, your nephew's toddler, if nobody else was in the room, he may not even ask Alexa to play Proud Mary. Right. Because there's nobody there to hear him tell the story. We long to be seen. We long to be heard. We long for our stories to be told. Ask any musical performer, ask any great artist, ask, ask, ask any artist, right? right? Ask him, like, I, I paint because I really do long. Now, I might, I might be nervous about this. It might be a little anxiety-provoking when I, you know, put my show up in a gallery. But I put my show up in a gallery because I, 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 I really want it to be seen. Yeah. to let you know about something that's going to be happening on October 28th, which is a Friday. It is the second annual Center for Being Known Connections Conference. You want to talk a little bit about that for us, Kurt? Yeah, thanks, Pep. We're really excited. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the Connections Conference that we had last year. And this year, it is going to be a one-day event, Friday, October 28th, as you mentioned. And the purpose of the Center for Being Known is to serve as a clearinghouse, but also to develop an association of those folks who are really interested in pursuing more about what it means for us to not just learn about 
what we're doing at the interface of interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation, but how we apply this in our day-to-day lives. Mm. And in particular, how we apply this work in particular domains of our lives, whether we are working in business or education or in the arts or in the mental health field or whatever it is that we're doing. If we're working in farming, whatever it is that we're doing, we really want to invite people to be curious about what is God up to using this work that he's given us to do and how does that enable us to flourish in particular ways in those particular domains. And so the conference is offering four really, really seasoned speakers, people who know their craft and who know their worlds, four speakers, one in business, one in education, one in spiritual formation, one in the mental health field, that are all going to help us dig deeper into what it means for us to apply these principles in their particular domains and also help spark imagination for everyone else who comes uh, to do the same, no matter what that domain is that they long to see God do more work in. I'm really excited for this this year. You know, last year we did just a virtual event, and this Mm -hmm. year we are doing a hybrid event where you can actually come to the event, be there in person with us, And if you aren't able to make the trip, wherever you are, there is a virtual option as well. Go to thecbk.org to register and get all the information. Um, I will actually be there. I'll be emceeing the event this year, which I have... Dude, okay, okay. I've no idea why. I've been chomping at the bit. I've been chomping at the bit to say, like, yes, like, you're the reason people should come. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, let's just I have t- had let's so many this. people ask the question. I've had so many people ask the question. So, Kurt, what's the story behind the most beautiful man in the world? And I want to say, come to the CBK conference and get your answer. Oh, my gosh. And I tell you what, we have decided to do something really different as well. Uh, if, <laughs> if you are coming, if you're in town, uh, then the night before, on the Thursday before, on the 27th, we are going to record a live version of the Being Known podcast. And Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're <laughs> and we're all going to be there. Amy will be there. It's yes. all. It's just. It's going to be. It's going to be great. And I, uh, we're going to hold this uh, at a place called McLean Presbyterian Church. It's going to be a beautiful venue. And you know, I, I would love for people to come. You know, for the CBK conference, come for our live recording of uh, the podcast. And I and I would say I would want people to come. Certainly, uh, come prepared to uh, find joy. Mm-hmm. Come prepared to find connections with other people, to be nourished, um, but also during the conference, uh, come prepared to do a little bit of work. Come prepared to you know do some some work of of some rigor because we're going to invite people. To, we're going to in, invite you to uh, let God uh, into spaces that perhaps we've not always even been aware that He wants to come into. But uh, overall, I'm just thrilled at what we've got on the docket for this conference and for the podcast recording. And uh, Pepper, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you're going to be able to emcee this and that we'll get to do the recording the night before. I'll do my best to not ruin the whole event. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited about it. So go check it out at the CBK, T-H-E-C-B-K dot org to register. I think about, I mean, I'd love to hear you talk more about like how you tell as an actor, man. Well, I mean, you know, the first thing is, is is that trying to make someone else's words your story, you know, 
that's that's where it starts. You know, it's not talk about someone else telling, you know, creating your story, you know, from the yeah. beginning. You you this this script, you have to you know, find the things that you can relate to about the character and things that those things that you can't relate to, finding a way to relate to them so that you can tell it truthfully because the the goal of the actor is to present the character and the story as truthful as possible. And, you know, my teacher, who we've talked about before, Charles Nelson Riley, would say that the author's job is the black on the page and the writer's is the white between. I mean, the, the mm. actor's is the white between. So you've got to fill in all the white. You've got to fill in mm. all the white spaces. And that work starts with the script, but then you've there is a lot of white space that you've got to fill out as an actor right. to help tell the story. Right. You know? Yeah. And when it's, when it's done collaboratively, that's when it's the best. I was thinking about that collaboration this, this morning, and I was thinking about a play that I did years ago called Wild Oats, and it's this Western farce, right? It's this crazy, <laughs> crazy thing. And in the middle of the play, the main character takes a train to another town. And so all of the actors, we became the train together. <laughs> and and it was actually incredible. Like we were huh. all those things and and the audience was kind of taken away by that by that moment yeah. of you yeah. know us collaboratively coming together and and creating that image and that feeling on the stage. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's yeah, right. it starts with with someone else telling the story and then you figuring out how to fill in the gaps. Well, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm also, um, I, I know that you've, you've told the story before of your being the grocery delivery boy right. man. And uh, one of the things that, if I, if I remember correctly, if I'm, if, if I'm yep. getting this right, if I, if I remember that you, do I remember that you went to a grocery store? Just, just in my mind. Although I have in, done that but, but, kind of work but, before where you, where you you know, you physically try to do the things, but yeah, yeah. Right, but but I'm saying like, you didn't just look at the script. Right. And then show up on the stage having memorized the script. Right. Long before that, in your mind, you are doing all the work that that yeah. young man would do. Putting my apron on in the back room, going, you know, coming to work, picking out the groceries that I need to deliver these things. Yeah, all that stuff you're, mm-hmm. you're, mm-hmm. you're doing mentally because- you bring that on, you bring those thoughts and that energy on stage with you when you come on and people can pick up on that. As you know, I've told this story before, but to give the Reader's Digest version this particular night, so I, I routed out my whole route mentally as I'm preparing to go on stage. And and uh, when I got to the apartment building, the elevator was broken. And so in my mind on this particular <laughs> night for whatever reason, and so I took the stairs and Came on stage, I did the scene, and I got off, and the director was sitting off stage when I came off, and she said, what happened to the elevator? Oh, my gosh. Right? I, I mean, like, I got, I, I got goosebumps on my arm. I've heard this story a right. dozen times, and I and I'll want to hear it another dozen times because every time you say that. Go yeah. ahead. I mean, it's, it, and it's just, a, you know, that, that's what I mean by filling in the white. The, the, the actor has to fill in all the white parts on the page because you've got to create a history. You've got... Otherwise, if like you said, if you're just somebody that's memorizing lines and coming on stage, it's so not compelling. It's you know right. you, you you see a flatness in that performance. There's no depth. There's no you know it's not a three dimensional person. 
Right. So I got a question for you. I don't think I've asked you this. What was it like for you to hear the director make that observation? It was eye-opening. I mean, you know, like this was, I was a young, I was an apprentice. I was a young actor and was really in an environment where I was learning every day and Mm -hmm. trying new things and, and trying to learn this craft and all this kind of thing. And for me, you know, to do the homework, to do the work, and then... I was shocked that she, because I didn't, I, as I've told you before, I wasn't like huffing and puffing from the staircase. I was, it was just a thoughts that I brought on stage with myself mm-hmm. of this, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I probably had an attitude about it or whatever, as I came on, that was different. And the fact that she saw that, um, you know, really solidified that I was on the right track as a young mm-hmm. actor. Um, this role was a very small role. So it, it, it afforded me the luxury of time to be able to really mm-hmm. dig into these things. And it made me realize that you need to do that for all, all the parts that you play and all the work that you do. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I was kind of, I was, when she first said it, I was in shock. I'm like, how mm-hmm. did you <laughs> know? And she, her expla- explanation was, you know, thoughts have energy and you brought that on stage. And that's, that's how I knew. Right. Yeah. I think I think that this you know this uh, I I wonder also like how that like her recognition of that I wonder how I'm wondering like what's your sense of you know to what degree that shaped or encouraged or reinforced your confidence that like oh this this is good for me to do yes yeah. yeah for sure practicing hundred percent hundred percent it was you know I, I'd go so far as to say as as far as that portion of my life and, and going after that career and learning that craft, it was a turning point for me. Like wow. it was a real place where I was like, okay, I, right. I, I know I can do this. And if I do, you know, it's just about doing the work and, mm-hmm. and I felt like mm-hmm. I was on the right path for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. We're going to, we're going to come back to this in our next episode, this whole notion of doing the work. But this leads to this last feature of storytelling that I want to emphasize. And that is that, you know, if, if I, I mean, as an actor, you know, it's, it's, uh, you can imagine if you're playing to a full house, that's a little different than if you're playing to a house that's only half full. Yeah. Some of the plays that I did in these little 99 seat theaters in LA, we would be backstage and we would vote. Because if there were more people in the audience than there were in the cast, we would vote to see if we would actually do the show. We'd always do the show, but we'd sometimes we'd do it to like three people. It was miserable. Oh, so. oh my gosh. Right. Well, and so so this this whole notion then that not unlike you as the actor in, in these 99-seat, you know, theaters, we tell our stories, but the ones who listen also help us tell them. Hmm. It is the presence of others. It is the, I, I, as a storyteller, I don't just want my story to be heard. I want to tell my story. For, for you. But it is, as it turns out, your presence also is what enables me. It tells the story. It is helping me tell the story. When your director offers that reflection to you, you discover that she now has entered into your story as part of the, she's a teller. And her reflecting that her indicates she's she's paying attention to what you're doing, she's listening, she's watching, she's sensing, she's she's receiving you, and as such, she's helping you tell the story so that you then say like, oh, this is this is what I need. this is a turning point. Her listening is helping you further tell your story. 
And so this is another thing uh, for our listeners to, to remember that anytime we are the listeners of someone telling us of their story, uh, remember that like we are helping to tell it by our very presence of listening and attunement. And I don't want to go off on a tangent here too much, but didn't, yeah. didn't um, you say that uh, when someone is listening to you and hearing you and responding and you know that they're listening and paying attention, that there are neurological changes going on in your brain? Right, right. Well, I mean, in many respects, that attunement yep. that they are offering, that attunement is actively in that moment connecting their right hemisphere to my right hemisphere. Like my, their, my, their right hemisphere is turning on my right hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And it means it gives me that much, even that much more freedom, right? It's like if I'm about to say something to someone that is going to feel embarrassing, for instance, or, or difficult to say. And as I start to talk, I, without maybe even noticing it, I probably won't even notice. If I notice that their, that their gaze and their posture remains soft and receptive, and I said the first sentence, and maybe perhaps I get a response of empathy, or at, least, at the very least, neutral. They're not angry. They're not harsh. Like, I feel the lightning in my chest. I feel, the, the, I feel a certain lightness, and I am, I'm, I'm more willing to say more, more willing to say more. There is more of my story that is being told, and because my brain is being turned on by their brain by virtue of their receptivity. And not only is it being turned on, but there's a certain connectivity between my right and my left hemisphere that is now taking place in a particular way that otherwise wouldn't take place. I keep, like, there's certain things that we just don't ever say. I don't ever let myself say them out loud. And so instead, I have to contain that emotional distress in some way, shape, or form. And I do so in my body because it's the only place I can contain anything. We might think, oh, I just, it's just like I contain it as a thought. No, like the emotional energy that that thought, you know, represents, like I have to, like physics, the physics of energy, you can't create it or destroy it. You have to, it, you only, it only changes like form. Like it's got to be, it, the form of it has to be contained someplace. And so when we are telling our stories more adaptively, we become more integrated human beings, quite literally, even in our brains. And this, of course, this whole process of how we tell stories is exactly what evil wants to take advantage of. And we're going to talk about this in the next episode. But it's here that we introduce this notion that uh, we've talked about on other occasions, this notion of having our own shame attendant, this our own personal attendant whose job it is. It's like the, the a valet, narrator. like your own personal oh, right. valet. Yeah, my Machine own personal valet. valet. My, right, exactly. And I, and I think I, I, you know, I, I gave it that name with like, wouldn't, wait, wouldn't it, shouldn't it be better to be like the shame persecutor? The like, no, like this is, this is how evil is so subtle. Right. As we'll talk about it, 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 this, the subtlety of this, this notion that like, he's the narrator who came for dinner and stayed indefinitely. Because our neural entanglement, it like becomes the Gordian knot of life, where in all these places, so like in Robert's story, as his story unfolded, we came to discover that there was lots of anxiety on his mother's part for him. And his father became irritated at his mother's anxiety, thinking that his mother's anxiety is going to, you know, turn Robert into a cream puff. And so the father would get irritated at his mother and then he pushed Robert to do things that Robert wasn't really quite ready or able to do. And so the story that Robert would end up telling 
even though when he came into my office, he wasn't, I mean, he just thought he was depressed. That's the, like, that's the problem. But the whole notion that he'd spent a lifetime telling a story of I'm not okay, you know, was not easy to register with him. But by the time we started to say, this is what your shame attendant is doing. Every day you wake up, you're not okay. Just want to remind you, I know that you're about to take this new job. You're probably not going to do very well at it. Well, and I, I, I've tend to people in my life. If I hear them, I hear their shame attendant coming out of their own mouth. I want to mm. just say, that's a lie. Yeah, you know, you're living a lie, and then you think that if the person realizes it's a lie, then we can move on. And you know, but as you right. talk about in the book, that's not. It's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's more complicated because of our because of the way that we're made, our neural circuitry because of how it gets embedded fairly, you know, fairly deeply. And, 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 we, and we might say, you know, it's going to be there for a long time, which requires then a different kind of attunement and attention to it in order for us to address that shame attendant that we would like to just fire and get rid of them. But we recognize we just have to, over time, as we'll see, we're just going to give them less and less and less work to do. Mm. We're not, they're they're going to be uh, eventually work themselves out of a job. This week, uh, as we come to the end of our time, we have an application for our listeners. And I want to just invite you to take some time to begin to pay attention to your story. A number of ways that you can do this. You can begin by writing about it. One of the ways that we recommend that people do it, just take 30 minutes. And you can begin to write anything that you want to about your memories of your life a decade at a time. Take 30 minutes to write about your first decade and second decade and so forth. And as you do so, as you write, and we... I, I, I you know, invite people to do this by hand because it slows the process down. It allows the affect and the emotion and the sense to be more accessible to your awareness. And as you do so, pay attention especially to what and to how you're paying attention to your story. At what level are you paying attention to the macroscopic level, the microscopic level? What are what parts of your story are you turning your attention toward? What's important? And also begin to pay attention to what you're sensing or imaging or feeling or thinking or the impulse that you have to act with your body in any way that's associated with that sensation of shame that we've talked about. Anytime that starts to show up, be curious about where that is. And then without any judgment, be curious about how long you've told that part of your story. And when you first recall telling it that way, who were the people that were involved or were around you when that was happening? keeping those storylines in your awareness as you begin to allow God to add his own lines that will enable you to tell your story differently. And God's involvement in this whole storytelling venture is something we'll start to pay attention to in our next episode. Can't wait. This was great today, Kurt. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate it. Um, Until next time. Until next time. And uh, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, we have our bonus footage coming up with producer Amy so stick around for that love you Kurt love you man this podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson Pepper Sweeney and myself Amy Chella audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons video production and editing is by Mark Gould speaking of videos each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media 
at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.